morning. This is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at KOPN.org and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Today on the show, we'll discuss the struggle to keep up with contact tracing as the virus surges, and we'll review frequently asked questions about the pandemic. We are joined by Sarah Davis, local midwife with a master's degree in public health. And as you know, our host is Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, local family physician and host of Your Health Matters here on KOPN. She joins us via phone this morning. Good morning, Dr. Alleman. How are you doing? Good morning. Good morning, Mallory, and good morning to you, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. Mm, my pleasure. So you, we usually start out with a little bit of numbers, and I think I'm just going to say they're really high and getting higher, um, in part because the uh, Boone County um, Health Department website has not updated since the 27th. Uh, we had 162 cases, new cases on the 27th, and Matthew Holloway, who I usually count on for uh, Missouri numbers is, um, I think, very appropriately not updating his numbers on the weekends, and so his hasn't been updated since the 25th. Um, but I will say that we're up to 26 deaths in Boone County, and um, uh, let's see if I can find that, and uh, 31 deaths in Cole County, um, uh, 12 deaths in um, uh, Callaway County. So we're seeing death rates rise. And on the 25th, which is the last day that Matthew Holloway gathered data, there were 5,721 new cases in Missouri just in a 24-hour period of time. So what we know is that cases are rising very quickly. And honestly, it's hard for everybody to keep up with the numbers. And it's possible we're going to stop being able to accurately count the numbers because of how quickly they're accumulating. Um, one of the things that has changed is the Boone County Health Department. They were about 10 days behind contacting contacts. So they had a system where if you were had a positive case, they would uh, if you had a positive test, they would call you and say, hey, who have you been around? Um, people would share that, and then they would call those people. But when you get about 10 days behind, it starts to be futile and embarrassing, and people are probably pretty mad about getting called 10 days later when we think that the most common times that you would transmit the virus is in the first nine to 10 days. So um, they are changing their, um, their strategy. And what they're doing is every day they're contacting all of the new cases that they can. And then the ones they can't get to, they're sending them a packet either by email or in the mail and asking them to contact their own contacts, which is a little challenging. It's a little overwhelming. And so I wanted uh, Sarah to come and talk about what that might look like. Um, Sarah's been doing a little bit of contact tracing, and um, the disclaimer is that Sarah's a great friend of mine and has recently started to take, has taken over ordering tests in my office and giving people follow-up information. So she's been doing a lot of talking to people who have recently been exposed. And so I'm wondering, Sarah, um, what, how you've noticed that's changed over the last couple of weeks, and uh, what are the, some of the common questions that people have when you begin to have this conversation with them? Mm -hmm. So some of the things that have changed recently, um, you mentioned that Boone County has just changed their institutional policy, um, and that's not unique to Boone County. That's, that's happening yeah. in a lot of counties in Missouri and all over the country uh, because as you said, the cases are rising so quickly that there's really no way 
for county health departments to um, be able to keep up with that level of uh, contact tracing. So what happens when you talk to people about contact tracing um, themselves is that people have to go back about 48 hours before they first had symptoms or before they had a positive test if they never had symptoms. And then they need to think of people that they may have had close contact with in that time. And that's often, um, that's often upsetting uh, because people realize that they've had contact with a lot more people than they thought. For example, family members who may have visited or people at work or people out in the community, um, in businesses, um, folks at school, contacts through children and sports, uh, church activities. So all of those kinds of situations are, are common, common places where people may have had a close contact. So the person with the positive test has to think back starting 48 hours before they had symptoms or before they got the positive test and identify all those people. And then previously the health department would have called those people. And now we're asking the person with a positive test to contact those people. You know, I haven't actually done that as a person with a positive test ever. So I cannot say what happens um, or what the difference is between a person with a positive test uh, calling friends and family and work and, Search contacts versus the health department, but I can say as somebody who has done it on behalf of a health department um, that people are not always surprised that they've been identified as a close contact. Sometimes the person um, who was their close contact has already contacted them, um, but sometimes not. Sometimes it's really an unpleasant surprise. Um, it butts up against people's um, people's beliefs in how careful they're being and people's um, assumptions about how careful their contacts are being. It butts up against personal beliefs about um, how dangerous the virus might be. So those are some of the, some of the things that happen. Yeah. I have also had heard people um, feel somewhat angry and blaming about people who got infected. Um, for example, you know, there might have been a lot of people at a party and the blame and shame comes down on the one person who, or the few people who got infected as if somehow the problem with the getting the virus, not that all of those people actually attended the gathering of, or went to the grocery store or work in the workplace. Um, and uh, I think that, that, um, that, that that's how the health department plays a lovely, can play a really important role in separating those two people from each other. So if there is some um, unhappiness, that that can get neutralized. And also the health department provides some anonymity. That is, when the health department calls you and says you're the close contact of a case, they don't, the person calling you doesn't even know who it was that right. you were exposed to. Yep, um, that's correct. And so, it, yeah, it can take some of that personal, uh, I don't know, personal big feelings out of the way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, 
And like yeah. with all contagious diseases, it's, it's um, I think by human nature, people want to blame someone. <laughs> and the reality is yes, that when there is, <laughs> the reality is that when there is this much community spread happening in a community, um, that it's actually hard to not be exposed if you go anywhere or do anything, even if you are actually following guidelines about mask wearing and social distancing. Yes. Um, so, so it says. So you start with forty-eight hours before you started to have symptoms, or if you didn't have any symptoms, forty-eight hours before your positive test. And then, how long is a person contagious? How far in? Like, right. Like maybe people were sick for many days before they got tested. Right. And that's why we um, that's why we have been using the symptom date or the onset of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And it's also true that our understanding of this is evolving. So right. the most recent research indicates that most people are contagious and actually very contagious um, from about 48 hours before they start to show symptoms to about 10 days or maybe a little less after the symptoms right. started. So for a lot of people, they may stop being contagious between days, maybe even five to seven, but we're not sure. Some people are definitely contagious up to 10 days. And then some people who have more severe symptoms or who have impaired immune systems can actually be contagious for much longer than 10 days after the symptoms start. But overall, we think that most people, people that have not had the severe symptoms and they don't have um, an immune system problem are contagious for about 12 days. And that would include the couple days before they start to have symptoms and about 10 days after. Yes. And we think that um, people need to resolve their fever before they um, stop being contagious. Although that is tricky because some people are without money symptoms feeling a lot better and then they get symptoms back and another fever. And we think right. most of that is inflammatory response that is not necessarily an indication of contagion, but what everybody should know is we're not sure. Right. And it, right, exactly. And many people who have long-term symptoms do have recurring fever, even though we've documented that they're not contagious anymore. So the right. most current CDC guidelines for ending isolation are that you would be at least 10 days from the first day of your symptoms that most of your symptoms would have resolved or be almost gone and that you haven't had a fever within the previous 24 hours and you're not taking a medicine like Tylenol that might hide your fever. Right. And that some of those symptoms like the loss of smell and taste may actually be more likely to go on longer, so we kind of aren't counting that as a symptom right. that indicates you're contagious. So, right. you know, the, it, I think what's getting clear is that people, that this whole, <laughs> this process takes a little bit of finesse, and so I would recommend if anybody gets a packet from the health department and they are confused, it doesn't seem clear to them about how to think about this, that they could reach out to the health department, uh, the health department's mm-hmm. overwhelmed, they could reach out to their primary care provider. They could go online to the CDC website. They could call KOPN and give us a, a, a question that we could answer on air, uh, but there might be a delay in that. Or they could, um, 
<laughs> they uh, could uh, call my office, 443-7070, and we'll see if we can help them for free. And if not, we'll um, see if we can help them at a reasonable charge. Um, yeah. and, and can I add to that? They're also, yes, they're, also welcome, they're also welcome to fill out the web form for testing that is on your website right. that yes. um, – if you don't want to be tested or you actually have questions about being tested before being tested, it's very welcome for you to put questions into that yes. web form and then you'll get an email yes. or a telephone call back from me about those. Right. So, yeah, the way you get Sarah's advice is to fill out a form as if you wanted to be tested and you can put a note in there that you how you're thinking about testing, but the two of you can talk about that. <laughs> so then, so we've talked about how long people are contagious because then the next question is who's a contact and a contact is a person who's had a particular kind of proximity to a person during their infectious time. Right. Yeah. So exactly. The big question is who do contagious people spread the virus to? And yes. we think that they are most likely to spread it to people who are close contacts. And a close contact is currently defined by the CDC as the person who has spent 15 cumulative minutes within six feet of a contagious person over the course of 24 hours. Also, a person who has had physical contact with a person who is contagious, um, and that would be something like hugging or kissing, or a person who shares living space with an infected person, like a bathroom or a kitchen, and that's considered a household contact. And something right. that's helpful to know is that the CDC has recently changed the definition of a close contact. The old definition was 15 minutes uh, in one go within six feet of right. a contagious person. But what we know now is that even very short contacts that add up over the course of a day can still result in a person being infected. And what's interesting is they changed the definition um, in part based on a case report where a prison employee was infected after spending one or two minutes um, or even fewer minutes at a time, many times over the course of a day with prisoners who all began to show symptoms the next day. So they were probably at peak um, contagiousness right. the day that mm -hmm. he was interacting with them. But this is important to know because some institutional or work environments have relied on keeping close contacts to fewer than 15 minutes at a time in order to avoid defining their students or employees as close contacts if someone becomes positive. Right. But we know that that isn't really accurate anymore. So that's, right. that's why that's useful information right now, that even short yes. contacts that add up um, can, can... Yeah, and it gives us an opportunity, knowing that, to change our behavior if we can. So, for mm -hmm. example, in my office, I have one office manager, and I was being very careful to not spend more than 15 minutes at a time less than six feet from her. But now I realize I just need to stay away more than six feet away from her at all times because it would be very easy for those to add up to 15 minutes over a workday. Right. day. Yep. Um, so, but how, the places that we are real, that we are most likely to get this, the spread is, I understand that it's most likely in households and mm -hmm. then in places like bars and restaurants mm -hmm. and coffee shops where people spend time in proximity with each other without masks on. Right. And then, it's, and then it seems to be workplaces. Oh, I think religious observances are up there with the bars and the restaurants, and then mm -hmm. there's workplaces. 
Is that yep. your understanding as well? That is my understanding, and I would also like to suggest that we take that with um, a little bit of a grain of salt for the reason that we are not able to track direction of spread at this time. That's so true. And while we do know that people within households um, clearly seem to be infected um, in groups, um, we, we cannot say for sure where somebody was infected especially when the community spread is so high. So what we can say is that people who have become positive are more likely to have spent time in a bar or a restaurant or a coffee shop or to have attended a church service. I mean, we, we know that those things might be true, um, but we cannot say for sure where the person was actually infected. Yes, and one, uh, one of the things that feels a little bit inconsistent, because it is hard, it, we, all of these definitions have to, be somewhat arbitrary, um, mm-hmm. you know, like why 15 and not 16 minutes and why six feet and not nine feet. Um, but one of them is that we are not considering um, the location, whether indoors or outdoors, or the or whether or not people were wearing masks. And it can feel a little like we're being hypocritical saying that those things are really important, and yet we're not considering them in the definition of a case. And, and I'm not sure what's the wisest thing to do about that. But I want to make sure that everybody hears me say that I think that outside, being outside really does make a difference, and that's supported by the data, and wearing a mask makes a difference, and that is also supported by the data that we have. And so while we, I don't want the message to get confused that maybe mask wearing and being outside and more ventilation doesn't matter, I think that those are variables that are more difficult and it gets more confusing because of the various different ways that people wear masks and the different masks that people wear. So, I, yeah, that, that is the thing that often people want to tell me is that, oh, but we were wearing a mask and we were outside. And then my answer is, well, that matters. Thank you very much for doing those things. And it doesn't matter in the definition of a case at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And that may change later. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that sometimes I hear people doing is they jump to conclusions that because they've had that kind of contact that they must for sure have gotten infected, and so they can now let their guards down. One of the things that's been helpful for me is to see that household contact is people who live together, even people who share the same bed, are sexual partners, they kiss each other, they care for small children, they share uh, eating utensils because that often happens in households that the, this rate of spread in households is about 50 to 60%. So that means that somewhere between 40 and 50% of people who live in the household and maybe do all of this close contact are not getting infected. Um, and most infection happens within the first five days after symptoms. So the CDC has recently recommended that as soon as you think you might have this, like you develop a symptom and you're thinking maybe you should get tested, that that is the time to start to um, move yourself further away from your household members. So that would be a time to consider wearing masks indoors, to sleep in different settings, to um, not spend more than 15 minutes cumulatively over 24 hours within six feet of each other. So people would, you know, alternate when they were in the kitchen or the bathroom. And that can be very difficult if we're talking about a child 
And yet there are probably, once you know that a thing would be the safest, there can be some creative ways to perhaps implement some of these guidelines. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that sometimes people are like, well, my husband is positive and we've been very close to each other. So we might as well, like there's no point isolating from each other. We'll just do this together. Mm-hmm. And and I think that people need to. And then there's also the 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 presumption is that, um, well, so my husband is positive, and so I'm sure I've got it, and so now we need to test everybody at my workplace. And it may be true that testing everybody at your workplace would be a great idea, or we need to do contact tracing. But we need to. It's important for me. It's been helpful for me to get clear that there's the case, and then there's the close contact of the case. So there's the husband. And then the close contact of the case would be the spouse. And then the other people are the contacts of a contact of a case, which is not really epidemiologically a thing. Um, And at this point, with the amount of community spread we have, while the wife's workplace um, people may very well turn positive, it's more likely they got it at their household or when they went to a place than that they got it from this person. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm being clear about that. Yeah, and this is probably a good time uh, to talk for a second about other kinds of tools besides testing that we use right. to try to control spread um, because one of the ways that we can help close contacts to not spread um, to contacts of contacts is by asking them to quarantine. The yeah. testing is really, really helpful um, it gives us information, but it is not our only tool. Um, so if you are a close contact of a person with COVID-19, the most recent research tells us that you could get sick and be contagious up to 14 days, but probably more likely within the first 10 days after being exposed. And in order to prevent you from spreading the disease before you know that you're sick, um, we ask you to quarantine. So quarantine is the word that we use for the separation that we ask healthy people who might get sick uh, to do. And it works by keeping them apart from other healthy people during the time where they might become sick and contagious. And it means staying at home. It means being separate from other people, including the people in your home, if you can swing that. So no in-person work, school, or socializing. Um, You're welcome to do those things uh, remotely if you have the ability to do that at your house. Quarantine, like you were just saying, Elizabeth, means being separate from the people who live with you. And the most effective way to do that is to stay in a separate part of the house. Um, For example, if there's a bedroom or other room that you can use as your home base, to use a separate bathroom and to stay out of common areas like the kitchen and the living room and to wear a mask if you need to pass through those areas. If you live by yourself or if you are, say, a parent in charge of children, Um, You can leave the house during quarantine in order to get a contactless grocery pickup or, you know, drive through at the pharmacy, something like that. Um, But otherwise, we ask people who are in quarantine to stay at home and separate from other people. And then the other tool that we have is isolation, which is a lot like quarantine, but isolation is what we call the separation that we ask people who've had a positive test result to do. 
And we asked them to isolate for 10 days, starting with the first day that they had symptoms or the day that they got tested if they don't have any symptoms. So isolation is different from quarantine because isolation is for people who are sick and it keeps sick people away from healthy people who might get infected through close contact. This but might be a- for this disease, it is, we are t- taking very similar precautions. So the exactly. actions that you take during quarantine right. and isolation are pretty much the same. And that That's is exactly not correct. always true, but for COVID-19, it is true. Um, and right. so I think that people are thinking that really once you know that you're positive, then that's when you have to stay in your own room. But we're recommending quarantine is just easier. It's harder, but it's shorter if you do it by yourself that is separated from other people than if you try to do what people talk about is that we would just quarantine together. And I wonder if you want to talk right. about that. Yeah, I will. So. This is a hard one because many people live in houses or apartments or dorms with other people, including children, and it can be really inconvenient to find a way to be separate from these people for 14 days or even a shorter period of time. So because of this, some people choose to quarantine with the people that they live with, although this is not actually quarantine because they're not separate from those people. And this means that if one person in the household gets sick, they will have exposed everyone else that they were quarantining with, and those people will have to start their quarantine time all over again. So this can end up making... And all over again after that person has done their 10 days of isolation if they can't separate them from the other people. Right. So this can end up making a situation where an entire family or household can be stuck at home for a month or more, six weeks even, in some combination of isolation and quarantine. And again, not everyone who is exposed to COVID-19 will get sick. So putting multiple people who have been exposed together for quarantine means that some of the people who didn't get sick from their initial exposure risk getting sick from an exposure during their quarantine. Yes. And that's a little bit different that what we're finding is that we can isolate people together. So once people have turned positive and they are sick, they could be in the same room with each other. They are unlikely to hurt each other. You know, they're, right. now they've gotten it. But quarantining together is not really, I mean, it's not really a thing. I mean, people right. do it, and I'm not trying to shame anyone. And there are real understandable reasons why people do it together, but we just need to realize that that's not really quarantine and that it complicates it and it extends it. It does. And this is maybe a great time to talk for a second about children because there's very little discussion about what happens if you are caring for children or anyone else who might need um, a lot of caregiving. Mm -hmm. So the CDC does have some guidance on this and Any family with children who has already encountered this knows that um, just as in all the other parts of parenting, um, we have to do the best that we can. Um, And it takes some creativity. Right. That's exactly right. So if um, a parent is sick, it helps um, helps to figure out what the children can or cannot do on their own. If you're talking about babies or very small children, um, you know, those children require intensive caregiving all of the time. Um, and if those children are going to be in the home, parents can wear a mask. 
They can disinfect surfaces. Um, they can try to increase ventilation in the home. If it's possible um, for the parent to sleep very separately from the children, that's helpful. The CDC also recommends that if you have a place for young children to go, um, as in another caretaker who lives somewhere else who could take care of them, that that's an option. But that person also needs to be prepared to help this child quarantine for 14 days since they are a close contact of the parent. Right. So it would have to be someone who ideally was also not at high risk or um, for severe illness, um, you know, because again, this child might, might also um, be a person who ends up being sick. And I realize that sounds like not a lot of information, and it's because it's actually really just challenging to figure that out. And um, right, and we and ask I people do wanna, to do the best that I they do. Want to give you um, just a thirty seconds or so to say talk about separating breastfeeding babies from their mothers. Right. So our most recent research does not support doing that. It does support mothers wearing masks. Uh, while they are breastfeeding or caring for their babies, if we know that they're positive. Um, but our most recent research does not um, support better outcomes um, from a movie, babies from Sarah Davis, thank you so much for taking this time. Is there anything that you want to add uh, very quickly? We're, we're at 930. I, I do. That. I want to say that when you should get tested. I want to address this very fast. Um, a test is a great idea anytime that you have any symptoms of COVID-19, anytime that you've come into close contact with people who aren't members of your household. That could be air travel, work stations, um, indoor gatherings, um, really just anytime any of those things have happened. Um, or really anytime that you have another reason to consider it. I would encourage you to look at our local testing options, and I think that those can be linked on the website, and you can also use Dr. Alleman's web form. And we, if you, if you gathered uh, for any reason and now you're feeling like maybe you should get tested, we will test you without um, any kind of shame or criticism. Absolutely. I am always happy to help um, people get tested. Yes. Getting tested is very helpful. Thank, yes. So thanks to everybody for tuning in. Wear your mask, take your vitamin D, wash your hands, stay away from other people, reschedule your Christmas till the summer, and uh, cultivate a cheerful confidence that you can deal with a viral infection. Thank you so much, Mallory, and we'll um, talk to you next week. Thank you. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. Special thanks to our guest, Sarah Davis. Sarah is a local midwife with a master's degree in public health. If you missed part of this program or want to share it with your friends, you can find it later today at KOPN.org and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. As always, we want to know what questions, comments, and insights you have related to coronavirus. Leave a message for us at 573-874-1139 or email gm at kopn.org. Catch us again live on Wednesday at 9 a.m. with host Jenny Chadwick. A few more announcements before we go. Meals on Wheels is collecting blizzard bags for their current clients when volunteers cannot deliver meals because of inclement weather conditions. More information about items to include in each bag and drop-off locations can be found by calling 573-886-7554. That's 573 573- 
886-7554 to find out more information on Meals on Wheels Blizzard Bag donations. And just another reminder that the giving season is upon us. Join KOPN for our one-day fund drive tomorrow on Giving Tuesday, December 1st. From 3 to 6 p.m., KOPN will host special programming to highlight local organizations that serve and strengthen our mid-Missouri community. Don't miss it and visit KOPN.org to make your donation today. Thanks so much for tuning in to KOPN 89.5 FM this morning. Between the Lines is up next. Stay tuned.